Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management, that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. This is episode 10. Welcome back, everybody. We're so excited to uh, have this episode. We're going to have Mary Kent on here. She is an expert in human trafficking and victim advocacy. She has lots of experience. She's an Army vet, a disabled Army vet, actually. So we're really grateful for her service. She has been in all kinds of aspects with human trafficking from uh, an intelligence analyst perspective to working with local police departments. She's an adjunct professor at Utah Valley University. She has ample amount of experience, and we're so happy to have her on here. Thanks, Mary, for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good. It's also Father's Day this weekend, and we're going to be talking about human trafficking. And so, like, I can't get away from the thought of, uh, you know, being a new father myself and some of the questions I have, and uh, being in emergency services and seeing kind of that hard part of life and uh, the, the life that we don't really want to talk about, right? Those lives where, you know, there is despicable people out there and they, they really hurt other people. And so having you on here and to be able to address like, you know, why families are important and uh, why, you know, this stuff is really important for us to focus on, especially with people who are in a response atmosphere of how to deal with a lot of these emotions after seeing these, um, you know, these dark corners of the world. So I'm just going to jump in and start asking you some questions. So again, being a father myself, like, do you believe that youth are properly educated in human trafficking? And when you think they hear about human trafficking, what are some of those perceptions that youth have and how do they protect themselves against it? You know, I... I feel like education with human trafficking has come a long way, but we still have an even longer way to go. Um, I don't think the conversations about human trafficking are happening um, young enough, which is kind of sad. So human trafficking can begin when uh, kids are in elementary school and into junior high school, and those conversations aren't happening when children are that young, which is understandable. Parents don't want to have to have that conversation with kids in elementary school that's so young. But unfortunately, in our society today, we do have to have those conversations. Um, also with cell phone applications and social media, it's changing so often that opportunities for criminals to recruit children are cropping up everywhere. There are hidden applications, secret applications, and parents themselves aren't up to date on these apps, so they have no idea what their children are getting themselves into. 
So I think with education, it's definitely never going to be a one-time deal. But as right. technology changes, as trends and, and criminal tactics change, we have to continue to adapt our education of youth. Okay, so I have a couple questions based off of that. Because when I grew up, when I think of human trafficking, I have at least before this field, I would have a certain perspective, right? Of like, okay, is it, you know, sexually exploited children? Is it, uh, I had a coworker the other day, he was like, oh, you're talking about pimps, right? And so like people don't, people have different perspectives of what human trafficking is and the level of human trafficking. Most of my experiences looking at human trafficking routes from the Middle East to uh, South America. Mm -hmm. And so if you were going to, to like address human trafficking, what areas uh, would you have to like break, or what categories would you define human trafficking is? Because there's like work slaves too, right? Right, I mean, right. So there's there's two different kinds of of human trafficking. There's labor trafficking and sex trafficking, and the the two have similar recruitment tactics. But what you see in, in movies and online advertisements, uh, in social media, a lot of that's going to be sex trafficking. Labor trafficking is aimed more towards individuals who um, have come to the United States either legally or right. they don't speak um, a lot of English. It's very, very little English proficiency. It's a different targeted group. With sex trafficking... It's anyone and everyone, male, female, adult, youth. Um, it even goes to infants as well. And so um, you would have to separate the labor trafficking and the sex trafficking to understand exactly, exactly how each group is recruited and right. their different atmosphere that they live in. And the things that happen to them. Because with labor trafficking, you're going to have immigration issues and things like that. Sex trafficking, you're going to have immigration issues. But also, you're going to have victims who are just like the girl or the boy next door. They don't, they don't look like they're a trafficking victim at all. And that's so scary to think about. Like, uh, I saw a report that there's 10,000 sex slaves in the world. Or no, 10 million sex slaves in the world. Yes. And how it is epidemically worse than all the years of slavery combined in terms of the the quantity of people like that that just one category of of, of uh servitude you mm -hmm. know slavery is just horrible to think about uh and you're talking about um labor labor as well uh we know in georgetown we went over and uh we were in qatar and there is a multi-generational a problem of servitude to a higher class and lower class. I mean, they basically are, you know, modern day slaves over there working. And so if you're looking at two extremely desperate groups, one, it sounds like it's almost more easy to d identify. They're, they're not in high level positions, right? They're mm -hmm. uh, working in the fields uh, on farms or they're, they're servants in, in, uh, in wealthy communities. Mm -hmm. And the other one is much harder to find and identify. So if I was going to say like, hey, this is like the human trafficking version of the D.A.R.E. program mm -hmm. to a youth and trying to educate them, uh, what would be like top three bullet points essentially that you would say are, hey, 
watch out for one, two, and three. Is it like just avoid the guy with the candy? Because I feel like that is like so obvious. <laughs> yeah. Like, duh. But I mean, do we still teach that even? Well, most of the time, individuals who are recruiting uh, youth into sex trafficking, they will recruit youth for up to a year. They will work a very long time to get an individual to willingly come into this life, this relationship. So what what a, a criminal does is they will look for those weak points with an individual. So say you have um, a child in junior high, male or female, they target a weakness that they perceive is within that kid. Uh, it could be uh, a rough home life, lack of love and affection at home, um, feeling like they don't belong. They target something like that. and Outcast. Right, right. And they make that individual feel like they are loved and accepted. And once that attachment is made, that's when the perpetrator starts to say, well, if you want to continue having this love and affection, I need you to do this, this, and this for me. Oh, man. So I would say the top three things for, for youth to look for is an older individual who wants their attention, who wants to spend time with them. Um, it, it is a little bit difficult because there are adults who want to help youth and listen to them and help them through their issues. But this is going to be an adult that is very, very interested in what's going on at home and wants to get you away from that situation alone with them. So that's number one. Number two is they start buying you things. They start trying to fill all of those needs that aren't being filled at home. Um, they will raise you on a pedestal and make you feel like you are the most important person in the world. They start taking you on trips and spending a lot of money on you. Um, that would be the second point. The third is when that individual starts asking you to do things that normally you're not comfortable with. So say they will ask you to lie to your parents so that you can go with them for a weekend. And that's not something you'd usually do. They'll use phrases such as, if you love me, or it's not that bad, or they'll be okay if they don't know. It's making those decisions that you wouldn't normally do. Man, that is scary to think about. I remember um, part of my anti-terrorism training um, I'm not going to name the publication because of sensitivity for it, but I had to read a publication put out by a terrorist organization. And even myself, who has a very firm understanding of, you know, black and white and what's real and what's not real, they were trying to mix those lines so much in that publication mm-hmm. that it, you have to be 100% prudent. You have to be aware. And I'm, I'm a person with training, right? And I can only imagine a child who is an outcast, who finally somebody's paying attention, you're, you're getting that source of affection. Um, I, I mean, that's scary to think about. And that's really more of a call to uh, the adults and the parents in, in, in those children's lives to, to step up and to make mm-hmm. sure that they don't have to go out to those areas. It's as much as, hey, be aware of this to a child, hey, make sure you don't, the child doesn't have to go to find a source. Right. And what you're saying is it could be somebody in your community that everybody knows. It could be, you know, the evil Mr. Rogers down the street <laughs> who's always just being really friendly to the kid. And so I think there's like this level of um, critical thinking that has to happen between both the child and the adults in, in mm-hmm. their lives. 
And so if I'm if I'm then switching over from okay, watch out for these like kind of weird behaviors from adults from children. Mm-hmm. If I'm now an, an adult, and especially if I'm getting into the field of emergency management, right? What would be some of those? Uh, and I don't even know how to say this uh, appropriately. Um, you've now experienced this situation. Mm-hmm. You've seen somebody take those actions. Uh, you're, you're in emergency services, you're a first responder, whatever, a social worker even, and it's your first instance, bam, like this, this 11-year-old boy, this mm-hmm. 12-year-old girl uh, was manipulated for several months and maybe still even have an emotional attachment to that individual. Uh, how, do you, how do you work with those children? I mean, what do you do? And it, it, not even just the children, I'm sure the adults as well. Um, you know, that's probably one of the hardest things is because like you said, they likely still have an attachment to the perpetrator. I mean, that's, that relationship is built on solidifying that attachment so that the youth will never leave. They'll never try to reach out for help for law enforcement or to parents or other family. So they are likely still going to be very attached. So if you're encountering you know, a, a victim of youth, there is a requirement that if you believe um, a child is being sexually abused or trafficked, you do have to call law enforcement and report Absolutely. that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of given though, right? Yeah, that's if, kind of if, the given. If you're not, if you're listening to this podcast and you're <laughs> like, oh, that's a good idea, you're an idiot. Uh, <laughs> but we're glad you're listening now. Yeah. No, that's true. So, what happens after that, though? Like, you know, law enforcement gets involved, and now you're looking at this child, and you're like, I had no idea for the last, you know, 18 months this has been going on. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that has to be a pretty heavy hit. You know, it's there's an interesting um, dynamic with when working with youth who've been, been sexually abused what I learned, I, I was a, a certified child forensic interviewer, and what I learned is you can't put down the perpetrator. You can't treat to the them to the victim. Yeah, you can't treat oh, this man, perpetrator. I, just want to the crap out of them. Yeah. I know. You want to yeah. say, you know what, this is a terrible person. You need to get away from them. This is a bad situation. But honestly, that's what you can't do because they're still attached. And so it's it takes a victim of, of sex trafficking, it can take up to 20, 30 times for them to finally detach themselves and realize that they are a victim of something terrible and that they need to change. So interaction with youth, once law enforcement has been called, it is repeated and consistent support and offering of care. And that's ensuring that they have a place to stay, food to eat, clothing, medical care. A lot of victims have not had medical care while they have been captive in this situation, so they will likely need medical care. Depending on their home life, you have to track down their family and determine if going back home is a safe situation. Sometimes the perpetrator is a family member and they can't go back. So you have to address those immediate basic needs. Yeah, if, uh, if Uncle Bob is the perpetrator... It'd be very hard for that not to be dead Uncle Bob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that's just how it goes. And so that that raises a question because 
I am, you know, this, this podcast is a hundred percent apolitical. We don't try to get into politics whatsoever. Uh, but the, the stats are there, you know, 16,500 kids on average, uh, not just kids, but 16,500 people are brought over into the United States illegally for the purpose of sex trafficking, human trafficking. And so we talk about this thing of, uh, no family separation at the border, which personally I get, we don't want to separate families, Mm -hmm. but if it takes 20 to 30 times for an interaction to happen to really find out if the perpetrator is really not the dad or could be the dad, to be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that guardian who brings them over, uh, is there, is there, uh, an argument for family separation? I mean, not family separation in, in itself, but separating youth from adults or uh, separating adults just in generally mm-hmm. just to, to interview with them. And how does that process happen? Do you, can you speak on that? You know, a lot of the time when you have youth being sent Um, across the border into the United States, family can only afford to send that one youth to the U.S. And their hope is that they will get an education, they'll get a job, and eventually the rest of the family will come over. Well, the traffickers, the the coyotes, the ones that bring them across the border, um, they will either do that illegally or they will bring it through Border Patrol and have the youth at that border station and then an individual already living in the U.S. who will claim to be the uncle or cousin will come and claim that child. Well, right now, Border Patrol stations are so overwhelmed with people, it's it would probably, in my mind, be a relief to have a relative in the United States come and claim this youth and say, you know what, I have a home, I can take them away from here and send them off. Most of the time, though, that individual is not related at all to that child. So I think, I and think. talk about a complex issue. Yeah, it really is because you want these youth to have somewhere to go, somewhere secure that they can stay, and you want to be able to, to get them through the system quickly so they're not there for a long period of time, they can get on with their life, but people are going to take advantage of that. So you have the need for an increase in personnel to interview these individuals who come in claiming youth. Um, you need a process of proof to show that they are an actual relative. Even looking at background checks for these individuals. Have they been accused of any t- type of crime before, especially related to youth exploitation? There's a lot more that needs to happen, but I think right now Border Patrol is just so overwhelmed, those steps aren't being followed. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we could do an entire season just on that, mm-hmm. on the over on the on responders, whether they're border, border patrol or whatever, just being overwhelmed by the the amount of work versus, uh, you know, the training, the ability, the resources available to do that work, mm-hmm. and that spills over so much, and it spills over on the border because, you know, I would say that most people are crossing the border are not criminals. I mean, they're not like they're, they're criminal in the fact that, you know, they're crossing illegally, but you're, as you said, like they're, they're doing it in order to get money to the family mm-hmm. desperation. And so there's that argument there, you know, of like, why, why don't we have refugee camps at the border to, to help these people out? And so that, that could be a whole other topic, but for the sp- specific 
for trying to figure out how to deal with this situation. No wonder it spills into the U.S. so much. Mm-hmm. It's not just immigration, right? That's uh, evil Mr. Rogers. Yeah. This is well sad. I don't even want to taint Mr. Rogers' neighbor, uh, name. I feel like I should use his <laughs> name. We'll just call him evil. We'll just call him Donahue. <laughs> so if you have a okay. if you have evil Uncle Donahue uh, there, then... You know, how do you deal with that? And you're talking, you, you, you've you mentioned, I mean, you alluded to it already of like, it's somebody you know, it's, uh, it, it takes several months to court uh, these, these, these people. Uh, social media has to play a huge part in that. I mean, the increase in communication technology, just being bar- bombardment of disinformation constantly, and who can you trust, and finding that acceptance online Right. What is social media's role and how is law enforcement playing a role in trying to curb that problem? Social media has almost been a friend to the human trafficker, which is a terrible thing. Um, Youth that go online are advertising all of their problems, all of their feelings, their issues with feeling alone and dejected and you do that, everybody does that. That's exhausting. <laughs> it is. That's why I'm not really on social media. It's bad. It's it, They do this all the time. And, and you're right. Everybody does, uh, adults and youth. We are all projecting our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities to the world. Um, and youth especially, they want to make friends. They want to be accepted. And they will friend anyone anyone and as we all know on social media you can absolutely be pretend to be someone you're not you can say you're a 12 year old but actually you're a 30 year old so yeah. they're projecting all of these weaknesses and vulnerabilities online and human traffickers are taking vast advantage of it and that's just the the social media platforms where um you're writing tweets or posts and things like that other types of platforms, they're actually doing the advertising for these youth sexual services. They're doing recruitment. There are um, apps that are intentionally designed for secret communication. For example, um, there's an app that looks like uh, the calculator app on an iPhone, where it's Mm. not actually a calculator. It's a a communication app that youth use, and they, they choose that to hide it from their parents. So social media has been huge for, for human traffickers. On the flip side, social media has helped law enforcement to track down human traffickers and track down victims. Um, a lot of work is being done to, to utilize social media to find youth who are being trafficked and to arrest the perpetrators. I don't know if you've heard the, uh, of the uh, web program Spotlight. Um, no, tell me more about it. So Spotlight, it's for law enforcement use only, but I believe the original idea came from Ashton Kutcher. He, he, oh, yeah, he became, yep. yep, he became a father and he, he really got into this, this idea that we could create a website that would help law enforcement track down human traffickers. And what this website does is it will go to web pages such as Craigslist and, well, the now shut down back page, FBI shut it down, but it would go into these websites and it would pull information on all of the sex trafficking advertisements 
and it helped to map out where these advertisements were being posted so we could see where the girls were moving or where the traffickers were moving these individuals so we could see a pattern of where they were going. Um, it also helps law enforcement to tie cases together. So if an individual has been approached by law enforcement before and they've attempted to get that person out of the life, this website allows for those notes to be written down so the next law enforcement officer can say, hey, they did this, this, and this. How about we try this to help this individual get out of the life? So social media is being used by law enforcement to track down perpetrators where the perpetrators are using it to recruit and advertise and find these individuals. I was once talking with uh, a good friend of mine who led FBI operations in Europe. And that guy traveled more than anybody else I knew. And I kept on wondering, from all the stuff that he had seen on terrorism and everything else, how he could still go out in the world and just have fun. <laughs> yeah. And so if, if you're thinking, like, if you're listening to this podcast or, you know, listening to an expert like Mary, like, how would you, I mean, I could, I'm even feeling that anxiety build. I, you know, my son and my wife's pregnant. I'm like, oh my gosh, like social media is the worst. Everything's the worst. Cannot trust anybody like hyper awareness. And we don't want, we don't want to create doomsday preppers. Right. right. Like, so how do you draw that balance? Especially you who have looked at this so much and say, you know, if I go back to my community, most people are good people and to try to look at them objectively and say like, well, Hey, you, you know, you're just a normal person. So how do you figure that out? You know, I think it all starts, honestly, it starts in the home. It starts with parents being involved in their kid's life, knowing what apps they're using, what social media sites they're on and restricting that based on their age, making sure that they are mature enough to understand um, the consequences of putting their lives out there on the internet. It's, mm understanding the needs and vulnerabilities of your kids and helping to fulfill those. Now, every kid out there is going to have angst. Every kid's going to have, you know, those vulnerabilities, sure. no matter what a parent does. But it is more likely a child is going to come back to their parents to talk to them about those issues if they know that they have a listening ear, that if they can trust their parents. Now, some homes, there's only one parent. Um, some kids are in foster care. There, there's different vulnerabilities there that we have to account for. But whether it's parents, siblings, cousins, counselors, foster parents, doesn't matter. If you can provide that safe and secure environment at home, be involved in your kid's life, and as sad as it is, talk to them really early about the issues, the red flags, the signs that they need to pay attention to. You know, kids are going to get into trouble, but they will hopefully remember what they've been taught and be able to come back to their parents and talk to them about it. There's like the good kind of trouble, like Sandlot, go get in some trouble. Exactly. That's okay. Like, kind of <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you can get in some trouble. And then there's like the bad kind of trouble, like stranger danger is real. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and especially, this is like so far down the total pole con compared to human trafficking. But even with, uh, you know, COVID, we've had to go to the store a couple times for groceries or whatever. And now I'm like super aware, like, don't get within 100 <laughs> feet of my kid. I don't want to get COVID in my house. And I think that's okay to to not not let people touch your kid. And I think it's okay to, to, to say like, hey, like, 
and even to address your child afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. Of, hey, this is why that situation was a little weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to kind of help them understand that. As hard as it uh, can be, you're the parent, not the best friend. And sometimes you have to draw that line, especially when it comes to topics like these or restricting their social media use. You just have to be the parent rather than the best friend. Yeah, my wife uh, would agree with you on that one for sure, because <laughs> I definitely play the best friend role a lot. Uh, he is my best friend. But, uh, okay, so we, we addressed quite a bit the that one avenue mm-hmm. of sex traffickers, especially with children, and we didn't talk about it too much with adults. But I would assume similar concepts apply, like a long-term uh, manipulation and that there's just, just gross people out there. But there's the other side of human trafficking and abuse, really, mm-hmm. because servitude is a, a form of abuse. And so if I'm if I'm using social media for that, there has to be a different uh, call signs or different triggers, uh, alert systems, whatever, that make you think, hey, this is a red flag for abuse. Right. And so how do you identify that if it's, quote, unquote, more easier to see on the outside, but maybe harder on the individual level? Like, how do you... What are those red flags for you? Um, let's use, for example, um, advertisements to come over to the United States to um, be a nanny. Okay, we'll use that as our example. Advertisements like those, when they are, they are a trafficking situation, a labor trafficking situation, they're going to promise everything. They're going to promise you a salary that is way above what... Um, the average cost of, of nanny services would be. They're going to promise a place to live, uh, transportation, whether that's transportation to and from an apartment that they rent for you or they give you a car. It's basically promising you the world. Um, in agriculture in Utah, we have uh, a lot of agricultural businesses out here. And say we have an individual advertising for laborers to come work on um, the sheep farms that we have out here. They're going to offer really high pay, a nice place to stay, um, offering vacation time. It's just going to look too good to be true, essentially. And that's, that's your first... For the level of work. For the level of work, yep. They'll, they'll say no education required. So say you have an advertisement to be a masseuse, but no cert- certification is required. It's just too good to be true, and that's a red flag. I really wanted to make a joke about being a, a masseuse in my home, but I'll, I'll <laughs> don't you dare! Around. Yeah, uh, it's like it's time and place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, man, okay. Speaking of that, though, like you know, off this topic, you and I have a similar sense of humor, right? Mm-hmm. Of like we can we can both address human trafficking. It's it's horrible, blah 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 blah, and talk about it from an academic and experience standpoint. But how do you make that immediate switch into, like, how do you compartmentalize? Because for me, when I would go out to these big disasters or when I would see, we would make a decision of, like, which neighborhood to save, knowing that people would die, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, they're in a hurricane. Here's two neighborhoods. You have to choose A or B. Make a decision. Go. And uh, that can be taxing. But then I could turn around and immediately be joking with people. Mm-hmm. And so I can compartmentalize like that. Is is that healthy? Is it unhealthy? Do you find that in most responders? And if you're listening to the podcast or if somebody's listening to the podcast, this is like a multi-level question, right? And they're like, well, I see these responders who are super serious one second, 
and then they flip that that switch and it can joke back and forth. Is that a is that a mechanism for relief? I mean, what is what have that we're weird people. <laughs> can you describe why we're so weird with that? <laughs> well, I can't describe why you're weird, but Yeah, well that's tough. <laughs> years and years of problems. Uh-huh. You know, you have to separate yourself from that work. You have to have that barrier. And some people can can separate like that and some people can't. I've always been able to to do so. So when you see law enforcement who are, you know, working a, a crime scene, there's a, been a death or something like that, they can be very serious and immediately switch to to joking because they've had to. It's out of emotional necessity. So when I worked for a police department and we would be, you know, I, I've seen suicides, I've seen um, a lot of terrible things, you can't let that affect your personal life. It's someone else's pain and you can't take that pain on your shoulders or you simply wouldn't survive in a, in a career like this. So um, there is a time when you need to, to talk about what you've seen, talk about what's being done, um, but to dwell on it or to um, take it into your personal life it is very unhealthy. You have to have that ability to switch from this is my job, this is something terrible, and you need to help this person to your own personal life. I think you just hit on something like really key there. Uh, at the end of the day, we're there to help people. And if you're not helping people, if that's not the goal, then it's a seriously question, like, what's the point of being in this field? And so I still remember several years ago dealing with a pretty traumatic, my first like really traumatic incident and having to, to process that. And I, I did talk about it with my wife at the time and, um, you know, how to deal with that. And when I found for me, which turned to be turned out to be pretty true, you know, throughout the field is exercise, you know, laugh a bunch, mm -hmm. uh, eat really, really well, like trick your body into uh, like feeling better. And so like, um, I think with the Japanese tsunami, I think I've talked about this before, they would have entire towns that were experiencing symptoms of PTSD, right? Their entire town was wiped out from a tsunami. The researchers would go in there and help out these entire mm -hmm. towns experiencing PTSD by giving them a workout schedule, giving them, uh, you know, really healthy food to eat, and really just trying to process that. So uh, hopefully there's some emergency managers on here, or first responders who are like, man, I, I haven't been handling mm -hmm. this X situation very well and really struggled to find that. Professionals mm -hmm. help for sure. But also make sure you do all those like really basic things of addressing how your body works. Uh, but I can't stress enough, like make sure you talk to somebody if you need to, if you are experiencing mm -hmm. that stress. And you're right, like you mentioned that it's not for everybody. Right. Some people can't handle it well. Uh, I was at a disaster, what, three or four years ago? No, it was after the disaster. And this individual we were working with, uh, she just... I mean, every little thing, she was, it was so dramatic, like such a dramatic impact to her that basically just had to sit mm -hmm. down like, I don't think this field is for you. Like, at least the response side, you can work on pre-disaster planning, you work on mitigation, you can be, you know, in a cubicle doing work 
and still be doing really important work without mm -hmm. being out in the field, even though that might sound more exciting. So it's maybe a good time. Um, maybe it's a good time to do that personal inventory of like, okay, am I made for this? Am I not made for this? Interview the people that are closest in your life. Like, hey, as you've seen me develop in this field, do you like the person I'm becoming or am I becoming more reactionary? That's a big sign of like PTSD of like the overreactions. And so, uh, yeah, like this really excellent call, call outs that you just made there. Um, you know, a lot of different departments will have um, individuals assigned to the department. So psychologists or counselors assigned to the department that are there for the purpose of talking to law enforcement officers that have experienced some really difficult scenes. I recall um, we had a, a suicide, uh, a young girl in, in junior high. She committed suicide in her in her backyard. And it was really traumatic for the officers who first arrived there to see her, see her in the backyard. And after that incident, they gathered all the officers together and they had a counselor come in and, and talk to them and uh, kind of discuss what they might be feeling, offer to, to meet with them personally. But I think as, as good of, of a method that is, I think talking to just your fellow first responders. In World War I, World War II, we had a lot we had fewer PTSD cases because soldiers, as they were on the ships coming back to the United States, had time to decompress and talk to other soldiers about their experiences. And it, it helped them to process their emotions before they got back home. It's the same concept for first responders. If you can take the time to talk to fellow first responders and process what you're experiencing, it's going to help put up that, that defensive wall of yes, bad things happen, but I can still be happy and enjoy living my life. Yeah, I I think that's an excellent point because I there's been times where I'm like, as much as I can try to explain this to you, like, I don't want sympathy. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm so stressed out. Like, I, you know, this event happened and I, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's really impacting me. It's like, uh, I feel so sorry for you. Hopefully, I mean, you know, rub your back. Like, I don't need that. Yeah. You know? I need like, yeah, it sucks. I've been there. Mm -hmm. You know, let's go get some pizza. Mm -hmm. You know, like, by the way, uh, I don't have a sponsor for pizza. So if there's a pizza company who'd like to sponsor this podcast. Love that. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can get free pizza for, for the people. Come on. It's my gift uh, for doing this. I get a pizza. I'm going to send this out to like five major pizza companies to see if they like it. <laughs> um, yeah, but like that's, I mean, excellent points. I mean, such this has been a different episode than the other ones we've done because we've we've hit we've scratched the surface of like PTSD and we've scratched the surface of like these things can be heavy hitters. But almost from minute one of this podcast, we're talking about the most extreme events to witness and be a part of and have that patience. I can't think of a more uh, a, a more strain on my patience than not attacking uh, a perpetrator of sex uh, sex trafficking to a child or to mm -hmm. somebody who's been involved with that. So even to develop that kind of patience and to be able to separate that, uh, like, like, thank you so much for choosing this field because obviously you have those skills. Uh, I've known you for, I think, eight years now. I was I trying to figure so. out. Seven or eight. Yeah. Seven or eight years. Yeah. And uh, just like to see you stay cool. Like you've been cool the entire time I've known you. You haven't become like, you know, 
So the fact that you're able to process that and help out this field is uh, really important. And uh, yeah, just, I don't know, we're not even at the end of this, but I just have to say that. So um, next part, okay. So we're talking about abuse and mm -hmm. we're talking about human trafficking. We're talking about all these people who are dealing with these situations. One fairly often question we get is, well, why don't they just leave? You know, and you're not even talking about children now. Mm -hmm. You're talking about adults who are, you know, the, the, the person goes away and they're there in the apartment. Actually, there was a really cool story about this, which is exactly opposite of what you're probably about to say. But uh, in Cleveland, there were three women that were held under um, for years uh, in the basement of a home. And uh, it was, I think it was in like Euclid. It was like pretty, it was a like Cleveland area of Ohio. And it took them years to eventually get up the courage, get up the strength, get up the everything else required to remove the cardboard. If I remember the story right, all they did was remove the cardboard and pound on the window. Like mm -hmm. they didn't even leave. But just to get that courage to pound on the window when mm -hmm. um, the rapist was gone is just, uh, it's just incredible to think about. Like, oh, so why did it, why did it take them so long to do that? Um, what would be your answer? There's a couple of different reasons why a, a victim doesn't leave. Some of these victims are in this situation because they had nowhere else to go, no other resources. So uh, you might have a homeless individual. They had no source of food, clothing, or shelter, and the perpetrator provided all those things. So they're choosing between having that or living back on the streets again. You'll also have perpetrators who will um, either take advantage of a drug abuse issue and withhold drugs from the individual. So they know that if they leave, they will go through awful symptoms of withdrawal. Or if they're not already addicted to drugs, the perpetrator will then get them addicted Introduce them. and, oh and do gosh. the same thing. Yes. So they, they create this, this need. So a need for drugs, a need for food, for clothing, for shelter. Other times it's, absolute fear. It's fear of, of violence that even if they do leave and they find protection in a shelter, that this person will find them and, and take them back, violently take them back. You also have yeah. individuals who believe that this person actually loves them. And to us, that seems really crazy that someone who would force an individual into labor or sex trafficking might still actually love that individual, and that's why would they they would stay with them because they have feelings for him. But mm. the the neurobiology of trauma with a victim, it, it's almost a rewiring of the brain to think that this individual is their protector, um, the love of their life, and there are reasons they're doing all these things, so they won't they won't leave. I actually had a victim. She was in my office. Her grandmother had brought her in, and her grandmother was a very sweet lady. She was offering, offering her a place to stay, love, attention, you know, anything she could need. And this girl, I say girl, I mean, she was 19 or 20, but still really young. She right. had bruises up and down her arms, up and down her legs, and she had the option. She had the option to leave the, the abusive situation and go in with a loving grandmother into a loving home and she still wouldn't go because she loved him and she thought that if she gave it more time that he would 
love her more and take care of her better and things would work out. That's just the way her brain was, was wired to think at that time. Um, we're often also afraid of, I know you just, I wanted to, but I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. She's an adult, so I could not do anything. I could not force her to do anything. But, uh, some people, they, um, they're, they're doing it out of that necessity. They're doing it out of fear. They're doing it out of that rewiring of the brain. It really just depends on what type of victim you have sitting in front of you at the time. So, again, complex mm -hmm. uh, and lots of patience. What would be, in your opinion, the most difficult aspect then of working with a victim of human trafficking or severe abuse? I would say when I was a victim's advocate, I think the hardest thing for me was, was working with victims like that, that young woman in my office where you could give them everything they need to live a healthy, mentally, physically, emotionally healthy life, and they won't take it. And you cannot force it. You cannot tell them that they're wrong. You cannot tell them that, um, you know, that this perpetrator is an awful person. They need to leave. You can't push them at all. They have to make up their minds to leave the situation. Until they make up their mind, nothing's going to move forward. So you give them everything on a silver platter. We can give you a place to stay. We can give you money for clothes and groceries and all of it. And they still walk out the door and say no. I think that's that's one of the hardest things to, to do. Because again, you want to strangle that perpetrator. You want to yeah. force this person to take all these resources that you have. But you can't. If they're an adult, you can't. If they're a child, it's different because they're they're underage. But with an adult, there's nothing you can do. What what could what is there like regulations that need to put forth? Elizabeth Smart was a minor, right? When that yes. happened with her, mm -hmm. okay. But when there's like a, I mean, there has to come to there. There obviously is a, a point of critical mass where mm -hmm. they're like, okay, we're ending this situation right now. What does it take for law enforcement to say, okay, we're done? You know, if, if we have an individual who comes in and says, I've been trafficked and we, we get information, if we can find that perpetrator, law enforcement can go after them. Now, the victim does not have to testify in court if they don't want to. You know, it's, it's obviously better if we can get victim cooperation. Um, but if we right. don't have that, we try and obtain other evidence on the perpetrator so we can go after them. Because when it comes to, to breaking down a human trafficking ring, what we really want is perpetrators to go to jail and victims to to get help. Just, just jail? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. But yeah, okay. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I mean, that's but that's the end goal, right? The end goal is to always help people. And in mm -hmm. this situation, the helping the victim or potential victims right. from a perpetrator. And if, they, if, if we can get victim cooperation, that's when it goes from jail to prison. But often we don't get victim cooperation, which is, is difficult. But if, if someone comes in and reports that, we can absolutely try and go after the perpetrator. So it really does take, I mean, it has to take so much courage 
for somebody who's a victim in, in any of any category really just to like to, to step up um it does man. it does and i consider victims the the true experts i mean i i'm i know a lot but they're the experts because they've they've gone through it and it's it's terrifying trying to to go from a life that you've known maybe for a really long time something maybe it's the only thing you know and then deciding to try and go out there and make it on your own without someone telling you what to do and how to do it without someone providing that for you. It's very scary. Yeah. There's, um, there's definitely the aspect of an expert of what this feels like, but then there's the expert of, uh, I know what it like. It's like from a first responder standpoint. Yeah. I know what it's like to, I, I would say that I know what it's like from an academic standpoint. I've, I've really only looked at this, this side of, uh, disaster because it is a disaster, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for an individual or a social disaster. Uh, but I've only looked at it from like, okay, like how is this happening around the world and trying to look at it like um, at that 50 foot, 50,000 foot level. So to be at that grassroots level, to be there, I'm sure there's people on here who have listened to this before um, and have thought, okay, my type of disasters I'm dealing with are people disasters the worst of the worst. And so mm-hmm. again, thank you for all the insights you just provided from parent involvement, from, you know, leadership involvement of children to making sure that the, they're addressed and the, the, those issues are addressed, that they're able to talk about those problems, able to talk about the, the situations that they're going to be in, uh, trying to make sure that kids are not felt like outcasts, even though all kids are going to be in trouble, making sure that the sandlot kind of trouble <laughs> and not the, you know, talking to evil uncle Donahue, <laughs> uh, you know, d- d- all those things that you just provided. And, and especially if you have been in this type of situation before, if you have, if you have been in there or you're addressing it now where you're having to deal with human trafficking, make sure you talk to other first responders, mm-hmm. use those resources from your department to, to allow you to process that. It is okay if you're, if you're laughing it off or you're having to find humor just to return to a sense of normal, you're not crazy for trying to compartmentalize, but still do all those things required, eat healthy, um, exercise, talk it out. Um, it is not weak. I think you would say that Mary, it's not weak to do those things. Yeah. She's nodding her head. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, that would be, I would, I would assume your advice. Do you have any other additional points that you want emergency managers who either either been in the field or have not been in the field yet to know about human trafficking? I would say, you know, there's a, there's a lot of education and training out there regarding human trafficking and first responders do a lot of that. They, they take it a lot of training through their departments. They get a lot of education. There's one piece of, of, advice I have for for first responders when interacting with a victim and that is to be genuine with with first response who knows what's going on you may have 20 other calls waiting on on your CAD screen if you're a police officer and you've got to get out of there quickly you're uh, a medic and again you have a lot of calls waiting and you have to get out of there quickly to to respond to everything you need to so you only have these few moments to interact with a victim and I can't stress the importance enough of reflecting this genuine attitude of wanting to help. 
there was the very first case I ever responded to as a victim's advocate. It was unfortunately another suicide case, uh, a young girl, an underage girl. So I think she was about 15, 16, committed suicide near her home. Her father found her. And my very first call was to this house to try and help this family. Because even though suicide isn't necessarily a, a crime, we still help those parents with resources such as funeral planning and things that they hadn't thought of because... Survivor guilt. Exactly. Yeah. Their, their daughter was supposed to live a very long time. So when I went to the home, I tried talking to the father, but uh, he was emotionally unable to speak with me at the time. So I went in to talk to the mother. And in this neighborhood, they had a lot of uh, family and friends support. So there were a lot of people there. And uh, I wasn't sure what to do. I was brand new. And this mom was surrounded by people on sitting on the floor with her. So I went down on my knees next to her. And I gave her some information in my card. Told her who I was and what I did. And that I was there to help if she ever needed me. And left. It was maybe 30 seconds worth of discussion. That's it. Fast forward to a couple of weeks later, I was tasked with returning um, a journal that the daughter had written back to her family. Uh, the investigative officers were still looking at it to make sure it wasn't foul play, that it was an actual suicide case. So I was returning the journal to the family. And I will never forget what the mother said to me. She said, Mary, there were a lot of people there that day, but I don't really remember most of them, but I remember you. Again, I talked to her for maybe 30 seconds, and she taught me that day that the way I presented myself, my care and concern, because I was just, I was very emotional on that first call, and I really wanted to be there for her. That's what mattered. That's what she remembered. Out of all the people that were there that day, she remembered me, and I be truly believe it was because of the way that I presented myself and that genuine desire to help. So... As a first responder, you may have 30 seconds, you have may have a minute, who knows. It's that reflection of the good person that you are and your desire to help others that's going to make the biggest difference to victims. The Journal of Clinical Psychology said that kindness is the number one thing to reduce threat and to change course in people's lives. So that genuine kindness that you provided of just... Hey, 30 seconds, this is this is why I'm here. I'm very genuine. You know, I, I think that could change a lot of things, a lot of problems that we see in that victim or in that survivor to um, responder relationship. It's just that genuine care. I agree. And so my genuine feeling right now, again, is to thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, that was a good transition, right? To thank you so much for coming onto this podcast, for talking to us. Uh, I'm sure lots of people will have questions, comments. Uh, we would love to hear those questions and comments. Uh, if you like the podcast episode, give us that five-star rating and subscribe so you can hear other uh, podcasts. Maybe Mary can come back on. That'd be great. If you have a question or comment that you want to give to us, feel free to send us an email at info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.